0: Between the time that somebody has their first mood event of either depression or mania to the time they actually get a treatment specific for bipolar disorder is about a 10-year average.
1: Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For over two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast. From paying the podcast hosting site to the equipment to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreoncom The Depression Files. That's Patreon, P A T R E O slash The Depression Files. In addition, It would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now, to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I wanna thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host, This is the first of several bonus episodes in which we explore a topic around mental illness and take a deep dive into the subject area with various experts and guests. I'm really excited to have Michael Pippich with us on the show today to explore the topic of bipolar disorder. I'm going to take a second now to read his complete bio. It's fairly lengthy, but I think it gives us important context of who Michael is and what he brings to the topic of bipolar disorder. Michael Pippich, licensed marriage and family therapist, holds a Master of Science degree in clinical and community psychology from California State. Bachelor of Science degree in psychology from Loyola Marymount University. He has treated a wide range of mental disorders and relationship problems in adults and adolescents for more than 30 years, which you would never guess if you saw his picture, uh, both in office and via online teletherapy. He's a national speaker on bipolar disorder, and he's got a book that we'll definitely uh, get into at some point here called Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. Uh, which is widely regarded as an important work in the field of bipolar treatment. He is also known as an expert in many legal cases involving psychological treatment and the law and has taught several graduate-level psychology courses. He was selected as a collaborating investigator by the American Psychiatric Association, or APA, performing clinical field trials for the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, also known as the DSM-5, and he has been featured on television, radio and print media on a variety of topics, and he is the host of Breakthrough with Michael Pippich on the Voice America Network, and he has now also been on The Depression Files. Michael, welcome to the show.
0: Al, thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here.
1: Hey, I'm so excited you know, to have an expert on bipolar disorder. It's really interesting, actually, when I started the podcast, it's called The Depression Files um one of the one of my buddies that i knew just from networking online and advocating around mental illness before i even started the depression files i contacted him and said hey here's the deal i'm starting a podcast but it's about depression so i'm not going to have you on the show and i realized after my first five or six shows so many men that i interviewed Uh, had bipolar disorder amongst many other, I don't think you could name a mental disorder that is not on one of the over 70 interviews that I have published now, which um, has been fantastic. It's been great. It's been a great learning experience for me. And now, and you know, it's interesting because some people, even though it is their diagnosis, don't have a real clear understanding of what their own mental illness is and people can find several people um, who I've interviewed with bipolar one and bipolar two disorder on the show. But I'm, I'm curious uh, to hear, Michael, can you share with us just how you got into the field of psychology?
0: Well, that uh, happened, uh, as you kind of mentioned, uh, quite a a long time ago Uh, interest. I was interested uh, mostly uh, in the early part of my career in terms of uh, how the brain affects mood and function. And originally, I had taken classes and courses in neuropsychology, but eventually I got more interested in actually doing psychotherapeutic work. Um, I had some uh, excellent professors and mentors uh, who helped guide me to learn uh, psychoanalytic theories and psychodynamic theories, along with object relations theories and and. and and so I, I always had an interest in terms of how the, the deeper unconscious process contributes to so much of our behavior and, and uh, good and um, dysfunctional, if you will, uh, along with how um, the brain uh, sort of connects with those um, mental processes. And so that sort of uh, kind of got me interested in bringing both of those worlds, so to speak, uh, together. And early in my career, those, those things were looked at separately. But I think more and more we understand that whatever we as therapists do and whatever our orientation is towards therapy, uh, you know, brain uh, phenomenon is absolutely important in understanding how these things work. And when you're talking about bipolar disorder in particular, with the aspect of, of uh, clear diagnosis, uh, medications, and, and their effects on, on individuals, all of those uh, aspects need to come together. And so that's really what uh, sort of inspired me in the early years uh, to learn about these things and to investigate them uh, as they pertain to individuals and then how those individuals interact uh, in their family and society and so forth. And eventually, you decided specifically to hone in on bipolar disorder, and I'm wondering how you came about that as well. Well, that that's really interesting uh, to kind of go over because so many uh, good things in life they kind of start seemingly by accident, but I think there's kind of a reason for everything. But uh, even though I've had training uh, to deal with clinical disorders of all kinds in adults and adolescents, in particular. Uh, several years ago, I, for no apparent reason anyway, I had uh, several uh, referrals from local psychiatric facilities uh, of particular, uh, particularly young people with a discharge diagnosis of bipolar disorder come to my practice for follow-up care. And, uh, and even though I had worked with bipolar here and there uh, over the years, uh, having a run of that <laughs> Uh, to, in my practice at, uh, at that particular time really challenged me to look deeper into what bipolar disorder really is, and, and especially how it affects families, not just the individuals. And as I mentioned in the book, um, in the beginning of the book, I tell a story about a young man, uh, about 16 years of age, who came to my office uh, with his mother, and he did very well in the hospital program. Uh, from which he came, and um, seemed to really get the concepts and and do very well in groups, but his mother really impressed me as 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 being sad and worried and very concerned. She was very proud of him, as I mentioned in the book, but she kept telling me how she felt disconnected with the therapy process, and that there weren't enough resources that she could find to help her. Uh, understand what what she went through with her son with respect to the symptoms before they were treated and the consequences of those symptoms, but also what she needed to do as as his parent going forward um, to help him and to guide him into adulthood safely. And the more she uh, shared her story and the more she kind of looked at me and reiterated that need, uh, the more I began to realize that that patients and families uh, have missed a lot of opportunities for education and solid therapeutic opportunities for all of them together. And, and I began to realize that it was more than medication alone, even though medications are very important, I believe for bipolar disorder. The overall treatment uh, not only involves medication, but a specific type of therapeutic process for patients and their loved ones together in order to move through their phases of treatment and and have increased success. So um, I started building resources, researching more, and over the years uh, uh, through those efforts uh, is, is where we are today, both with the book and with other opportunities that I provide, not just patients and families for treatment, but clinicians all over the country with regard to training and, uh, and helping other therapists like myself to really Um, understand uh, the nature of the disorder, what it takes to treat it, and, Al, very importantly, how to recognize bipolar. I wrote this book specifically for patients and families to understand bipolar and understand what the treatment requirements would need for, for success, but I've also found that clinicians can benefit as well because bipolar is so often misdiagnosed. In fact, about two-thirds of all people with bipolar disorder are misdiagnosed.
1: Wow, that is and, a lot.
0: Right. And, and about two-thirds of those misdiagnosed are usually given the diagnosis of major depression yeah. or a non-bipolar depression diagnosis, missing any possible history of mania or hypomania. And that is a critical factor because what I find over and over when people come to treatment with uh, and, and, and are finally diagnosed with bipolar either by myself or by another uh, provider and then is referred to me for, for therapy, is that uh, it's not their, it's not their first rodeo. They've been in therapy. they've tried medications. They found that medications very often made them worse because uh, bipolar was not identified. And so so many people just kind of languish in the mental health system without a proper diagnosis and a proper, um, plan and method to go forward to make treatment uh, successful once it is diagnosed. So there's a lot of people out there uh, uh, today that that uh, uh, don't have the proper diagnosis, don't have the proper care, and uh, and whatever we can do together to to help people to recognize that and help others to recognize that is uh, is, is critical uh, for the right treatment, but to save lives because bipolar disorder is really responsible for so much uh, of substance abuse and and uh, self-harm and self-destructive behaviors right. and suicide. We, we believe that about one-fourth of all suicides, Al, may be related to bipolar disorder. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that you talk
1: about the misdiagnosis. I've met more than one person who lives with bipolar disorder that said, Exactly what you just mentioned. They were diagnosed originally with depression. And then what I was told by, again, more than one person with bipolar disorder, they were put on an antidepressant that then threw them into a very high level mania, which was when I think it came to the realization of the doctors that, okay, if that's what's happening based on this medication, you are most likely living with bipolar disorder.
0: Yeah, and that happens uh, very frequently too. In fact, it's not uncommon for somebody to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder specifically because they were given an antidepressant medication by itself yeah, and it it, it, it induced a manic-type episode. Right. And uh, if that's recognized in that situation, great. We can stop the antidepressant, diagnose that person, oh, they're bipolar, get them on the right treatment path, and, uh, and, and, and then obviously their chances of success are much greater at that point. Unfortunately, uh, too often people are given antidepressant medication, they get worse, uh, they have uh, some type of mania, but not all mania is, is created equal either. Right. Uh, they may have increased agitation, they may have irritability and other manic-related symptoms that are not uh, immediately recognized. And so maybe they drop out of therapy at that point. Maybe they drop out of treatment or they say, you know, these the, the, these pills are crap and they throw them away and they, their lives get worse. They don't get better. So uh, we see that a lot. Uh, and if we can kind of catch bipolar at that point, then that's a good thing. But there's even other ways to to sort of uh, identify the disorder even before something like that could occur.
1: Well, and. I'm curious how long it takes a therapist, and I'm sure it varies, but might you have to see a patient for a long time before you're able to decipher what diagnosis to give them and the fact that it could be or is bipolar disorder? I know a man who lived for most many, many years under the impression that he was Um, living with depression. And then eventually he got a new diagnosis when he was like 38. And they said, you actually have bipolar disorder.
0: Yeah. The the research shows that between the time that uh, somebody uh, has their first mood event of either depression or mania um, that's identified in their life, to the time they actually get a treatment specific for bipolar disorder is about a 10-year average. Wow. So, And and so when you think about the average of 10 years, of course, we're talking about maybe 15, 20 years yeah. down the line. Which probably but, means mistreatment, too. Like yes. If, if uh-huh. they're
1: being diagnosed with something else, they're not getting the
0: proper treatment for the mental illness that they actually have. And, and, and that's so often what happens during that 10-year period or 15- or 20-year period, whatever it happens to be for that individual. Right. They may go in and out of treatment, and, and maybe they have some su- limited success in some areas or whatever if they can manage that between mood episodes. But overall, the bipolar disorder continues to be a major factor in their life. It doesn't go away even between those mood episodes. Right. The consequences of the disorder persist. And, and continues to wreak havoc in their lives, their relationships, their self-esteem, and, and so forth. But you're right, that can be a very lengthy time before it, it's even recognized. Um, you know, Jane Pauley came out with a book uh, about uh, her diagnosis of bipolar disorder. She was diagnosed when she was 50 years old. And this is a lifelong disorder. So that's an example of, uh, of a celebrity a famous journalist and TV host for many years, who spent her whole career dealing with bipolar disorder until it was finally recognized and treated. Wow! Uh, but that story is not unusual.
1: Yeah. You know, while since you've mentioned several times medications, and I know that you're an advocate for treating the whole patient, not just with the medications, but the whole patient, which is really impressive, and I really appreciate that. I am curious about the medication piece. When, when it comes to bipolar disorder, the, the one medication I typically hear of is lithium. And I'm wondering if, if there's one go-to medication for bipolar disorder, or are some people on multiple medications? And what can you tell us about the medications that somebody may be taking for bipolar
0: disorder? Sure, you know the, the the history of medications for bipolar disorder I find it is in itself a very fascinating thing because even though major tranquilizers and the sort of the old first generation antipsychotics were were often given people given to people with bipolar mania, you know, they didn't necessarily work that well or or maybe they worked very well for symptoms but they could make somebody be very sedated and so forth. So it wasn't until the 1970s into the 80s that lithium was introduced in North America for the specifically for the treatment of bipolar disorder, uh, and since then has been considered the gold standard for medications for bipolar. Lithium and on so, its
1: own, typically.
0: Lithium on its own. Now, okay. Uh, one of the interesting things about that that whole history is that. Lithium at that time was such a, a dramatic breakthrough for the treatment of bipolar disorder and could really reduce mood swings in a way that talk therapies, psychoanalysis, etc., couldn't do. And even the most ardent psychoanalysists at the time uh, generally agreed that instead of trying to do talk therapy with people with bipolar disorder, you had to get them on lithium. Um, and then that whole range of medications has, has broadened since then, and we can certainly talk about that. But it, it's sort of like it was a huge pendulum swing in itself. It was sort of like a, like emulating mood swings itself. It went from one spectrum to the other between talk therapy is the way to go to all you got to do is get them on lithium or get them on medications, whatever it may be, and that's all you can do for people with bipolar disorder. That became sort of the prevailing wisdom if you will at that time and in early in my career that in itself always bothered me like if if medications for people with bipolar disorder were so great how come people would stop taking them right you know how come they would avoid treatment so uh, that was always something that was kind of sitting in the back of my mind until uh, later on when i started doing this work and really investigating the the reasons why people would avoid treatment in general, but in particular medications. Now, people can have side effects. And in my book, Owning Bipolar, I talk about side effects. I talk about medication issues, not just the medications themselves and what you can expect in terms of main effects and side effects, but what it means to take a psychiatric medication and what it means to take away the potential for mania in a person's life Um, where uh, they perhaps have relied on uh, manic energy to get things done, to feel good about themselves, to feel good about their lives, you know, before they hit the crash of depression. So there's all kinds of reasons why, on the one hand, medications, starting with lithium and moving to certain anti-seizure, anti convulsant medications, which are also um, effective for bipolar disorder in in lots of people, to the newer antipsychotics, which are effective for people, um, especially if they have psychotic features that go along with bipolar one disorder and, and even antidepressants, if they're paired with a mood stabilizer that will inhibit uh, a manic um, uh, situation. So there's all kinds of treatment choices available from a medication standpoint, but nonetheless, even though these things can be effective it's still a huge issue for patients and for their families to even consider getting on medications, let alone going through medication trials, which sometimes uh, can be very successful right away and everybody's happy and we can move on in therapy, but more often than not require some experimentation, some additions and subtractions along the way within that medication uh, regimen. Right. And And again, you know, working with uh, patients and families uh, in those and all the other issues around bipolar disorder are critical for ultimately having uh, that treatment success that you're looking for. Right. Is it, is it true
1: that with lithium, you actually have to get blood draws fairly frequently?
0: Yes. uh, Particularly at first. Now I have patients that have been on lithium for a long period of time. And once they're in that therapeutic window, between too little or too much lithium in their blood. Uh, You know, very often they can go uh, long periods of time without having to uh, get their lithium levels taken. But certainly in the early stages of lithium treatment, that is absolutely necessary to do that, uh, to to take those uh, uh, blood draws and and test that lithium level in their blood uh, to make sure that they're in that, Therapeutic space or therapeutic window, not too much or too little. Uh, too little means it won't work. Too much means that they could become toxic and have some very serious effects as a result of that. Uh, what, but what also, might, what might
1: happen to somebody who becomes toxic?
0: Uh, they can start having tremors. They can start becoming very sick. And, um, you know, for some people, it could even be lethal. It doesn't happen very often, but. It, uh, it can make somebody very sick. Right. And uh, usually, you know, between the, for a patient of mine, between uh, the fact that I see that patient in therapy, and the doctors managing uh, that that person's care uh, very closely, and that when they initiate lithium, uh, it's it's rarely a problem. Uh, it's really nothing for people to be spooked about. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, it's it's just important to have a a team approach yeah. for uh, no matter what medication you're on, uh, no matter what your issues are uh, with respect to your own particular bipolar condition, but nonetheless have, have eyes on you. And, and I was also going to say too, that the, the interesting thing about lithium is that if you, you, you might be doing great for a period of time, but let's say you decided that you need to increase your, your exercise, uh, and, and uh, we could all use a little more exercise. So right. <laughs> if you decided you wanted to run a marathon, you got to start training. Uh, you have to see your doctor because the more you uh, sweat and the more you work, uh, uh, the greater chance that the lithium level may drop. So this is always interesting when it comes to people who have had a history of mania or hypomania and have relied on that energy to get things done. They start working out, even if they were diligently taking their medication. It's important to make sure... That increased activity is uh, is monitored with maybe another blood test or two just to make sure their levels are good. So so they may have to have that looked at here and there through their lifetime, or if the doctor decides to increase that or replace it a little bit with another medication. All of these issues are pretty common right. when it comes to bipolar treatment in general, and particularly with lithium is concerned. But the but the great thing Al to point out is that. Once people have achieved that sense of of mood stabilization and they move therapeutically to that next phase of post-stabilization, because I identify three uh, phases, uh, and when they move to that third phase of post-stabilization, very often people go, hey, you know what? My life is getting better because of what I'm doing, and and whatever sacrifice I have to make to keep on this track, I want to be able to do. And it doesn't mean that at some point they don't want to think about life without medication. Very often people do. And I, in fact, I talk about it in the book frequently that just about everybody is at some point it's going to go, you know what, I'm doing so great. Do I really need these meds? And, uh, and it's just a reminder at that time that you're probably doing well because you've had successful treatment and and why mess with that? Right. More often than not, people will go, whatever sacrifices I've had to make, getting started in treatment. I don't want to fuss with that. I want to continue to succeed with my life in the in the in the course that I've initiated and that includes having to take my medication on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, that's exactly how I am with depression. I have one medication I take and I'm not even considering weaning off of it at this point because if that is one of the pieces preventing me from going into a deep dark depression that I have experienced twice I don't want to risk it. (laughs) That's where I'm at at this point. Yeah. Not that that might change, but I'm curious, and I would, I certainly would never dissuade somebody from taking medication. Like I said, I take it myself. I am curious, though, I think it's important for listeners, too, to understand the types of side effects that one may experience other than the high levels of lithium in their blood that is getting monitored. Are there other side effects that, could happen from lithium, and how may doctors
0: work with patients to help mitigate those side effects? Well, sure. And I have in my book, Owning Bipolar, I have a whole chapter on bipolar medications themselves, but in the back of the book, I have a specific reference guide. So people can go to that reference guide and, and learn all about these medications and what to expect in terms of main effects and side effects. But when it comes to lithium, In medications in general, I divide the side effects into common ones and uncommon ones. Right. Okay, so the common side effects of lithium would include, first of all, uh, sort of a mild thirstiness or dry mouth. That's pretty common in psychotropic medications in general anyway. So some dehydration, uh, maybe some fine hand tremors, not, not super bad or super noticeable, but you can feel them a little bit. Also excessive urination. Uh, nausea or uh, headache, uh, these things are kind of common. Uh, usually, if they're not too bad, you can hydrate a little bit more uh, during the time, the first few days of taking lithium. Uh, a lot of times these more common side effects will kind of stabilize and, and more or less go away and, and won't be a big deal. But uh, but the more uncommon ones uh, would include those side effects i just mentioned but more severe uh kind of a higher level of of tremor or nausea or headache along with uh general kind of gi problems gastro uh, intestinal problems like diarrhea gastritis and that sort of thing uh, dizziness blurred vision uh those things uh can happen and, and those are signs of, of something that uh, a little bit more serious um a couple of things uh to mention, I think it, it, and for psychiatric medications in general, this can be these can be issues to one extent or another is uh, weight gain um, and sexual dysfunction. And those two things um, very often will dissuade people from taking medications entirely. Uh, sometimes people will just stop taking medications because they, they just don't want to deal with that. And it's understandable, even though if we have an honest discussion about those side effects, we can take a look at the, uh, perhaps other medications that are better tolerated. And that would be true with regard to any kind of serious side effect, but especially the ones that people find uh, that most problematic for their lifestyle. Yep. And, uh, then, and then uh, the, the other ones to look for that are very serious would be like a skin rash or hair loss, that sort of thing. Uh, you mentioned uh, toxicity sometimes uh, people are at risk for seizures if it gets really, really bad. Right. So if any of these things uh, become apparent or you're a loved one, uh, somebody who is uh, starting these medications like lithium and some of the other um, anti-seizure medications, you see any of those effects, it's important to stop and call your doctor right away. And, yep. and let's take care of those problems. Let's not let them persist or just bail on treatment altogether,
1: right.
0: uh, which is unfortunately happens a lot. And then, People continue to have problems with their untreated disorder. Uh, I'm
1: curious, you just mentioned stop and contact your doctor. Um, I've always thought that many psychotropic meds uh, require weaning off and so forth. But I guess I'm hearing you say if you're experiencing one of the dangerous high risk ones, stop the medication and contact
0: the doctor. Yeah, I mean, if you're having mild thirsts, it's yeah. likely not going to be a big deal, right? right? And you should still talk to the doctor. There's yeah. no question about that. Because, um, you know, we, I don't want to assume anything that right. among all your listeners, and everybody yeah. has a different situation. Yeah. But certainly, like you suggest, if it is something that that's reaching that more serious level, like we're talking about right now, yeah, I would say, you know, don't, don't wait, call the doctor. Yeah. Uh, talk to the doctor or the doctor's assistant or whoever can guide you through that. Yeah. And uh, let's take care of those problems because we don't want greater problems. We want successful treatment.
1: Yeah. And I, I think it's important to know even, you know, obviously sexual dysfunction is a huge one. And but don't just stop medications if you have any kind of side effects that are are challenging for you, engage in a conversation with the doctor, because maybe they can change levels to mitigate symptoms. Maybe they can change, I think you mentioned, changing a medication so that it doesn't mean just give up on meds and stop meds.
0: Absolutely. That's so critical. Stay in touch. You know, I think one of the most important aspects of any kind of mental health care, but particularly when it comes to bipolar disorder, is that we need a uh, a collaborative approach to care you know sometimes uh doctors uh, j- just like psychiatrists in the in the in the old days if you will uh, often did medications and therapy uh together yeah but as you know uh, the specialties have kind of broken into uh different particular areas you have the person who prescribes a medication maybe a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner or maybe the family doctor uh, in certain circumstances where that might be appropriate. And then you have the psychotherapist. Uh, Maybe you have, uh, maybe somebody in the family has a a family therapist, (laughs) you know, uh, and you have these different components and maybe adjunctive therapies. Maybe somebody is um, involved in art therapy or in equine uh, equine therapy or some other helpful uh, piece to that. And so, Instead of having all of these different pieces loosely uh, out there, uh, I'm I'm big for you know bringing all of the specialties together. That's so important that we can have communication together, particularly when it comes to how medications and these various various therapies intersect. And the life of those of that individual and those family members that are involved as well.
1: Yeah, I I love that suggestion, getting everybody on the same page so everybody knows what's happening with that patient as a whole. Um, I even saw that, you know, with my dad going through physical illnesses later in life. Like, we wanted to make sure the person who was giving him Parkinson meds knew about the the cancer meds he was getting and so forth, and that all the doctors were kind of talking um, so that all of his care was collaborative. Uh, my question about that, now that you've mentioned that twice, and again, I'm a huge advocate of it as well, Who's who's got that onus to make sure that that's happening Should it be the general practice doctor? Should it be a psychiatrist who says, now I hope you're getting psychotherapy and I want to make sure I'm talking to them and your family like, Or is it really up to the patient to make sure that's happening?
0: Well, Al, I'm so glad you brought that up because that brings us to the title of the book, (laughs) which is Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. And, And that's what I really mean about Owning Bipolar. Right, and, and I always remind people, um, patients and families, and I do community presentations on bipolar uh, for like NAMI and other organizations. And, um, and one of the things that, that I always like to say at the very top of, of the presentation is nobody is at fault for having bipolar disorder. It's, it is a genetic disorder. It influences brain development around mood regulation. Uh, nobody caused this, it wasn't for, because of bad parenting or any or, or necessarily trauma, although trauma can certainly make it worse, but makes everything worse in life. But it, it, bipolar is nobody's fault. But it is for the patient, the person with bipolar disorder, to own it, to take responsibility for it. and to some, uh, to, to, to some extent as well, the loved one around that person, to sort of own bipolar as well, because in as much as the person with the condition can be in denial uh, about having the disorder and what to do about it, the loved one also could potentially be in denial about it as well. So there's some ownership, I think, in the person who is invested uh, in the life, uh, in the relationship with that person with bipolar disorder. But you know, back more uh, specifically to your point about collaboration, I would hope that the therapist, uh, somebody like myself, certainly the the prescribing doctor, like the psychiatrist and so forth, could take the responsibility of, of bringing those parties together. And I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's the professional thing to do. And certainly the doctors I work with understand that very, very well and are excellent at that intervention. But we still know that so many people go misdiagnosed. So many people go without proper treatment. For, uh, potentially for many, many years. It comes back to the fact that patients and the, and their loved ones around them absolutely have, have to learn the facts about bipolar, learn the facts about treatment to the best of their ability. They don't have to have uh, degrees in clinical psychology like I do or, in, or in, uh, have to be MDs or anything like that, but just know what they're dealing with and deal with all of the issues in therapy necessary for full acceptance and and when you' have when you're armed with full acceptance and education and facts about bipolar disorder you can own it and you can become the captain of the ship when it comes to treatment going forward and that and I think that that is critical yeah uh, you know we hear advertisements all the time from pharmaceutical companies right talk to your doctor about this or that drug right right <laughs> you know, you know uh, and and you know what? I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Right. I think that that helps us to kind of remember, hey, we do, we, th- this is the 21st century, and healthcare requires us being uh, informed. Yes. And yes, there's a lot of misinformation out there. You can go on the internet and learn all kinds of things. Some of them are erroneous, as we know, in all kinds of facets of life. Yeah. But getting the right information and and, and that and that empowerment of going to your your treatment team and saying, this is what's going on. This is what I want to talk about yeah. uh, and, and work together on those goals uh, to make sure that uh, that everybody's on the same page and and we have the best kind of treatment uh, available.
1: Absolutely. Um, I, I like your positive spin to the commercials that I see are so um... I have a very pessimistic view of them where they're saying, you know, go ask your doctor about our medicines, go ask him, you know, (laughs) but you're right to create a conversation is important. And I've met plenty of men through this podcast who can't explain what they're on three different medications and they don't know why or what they're for. And I'm always like, look, talk to your doctor, engage in a conversation. And I think I hear you saying, hopefully your doctor is going to make sure that everybody in in charge of your care is collaborating. If they are not, own it yourself, own your bipolar disorder, own the responsibility and make sure you ask and advocate for it so that they do that. And if they question it and don't want to, I think it might be worth investigating whether or not you're seeing the right doctor. I agree a hundred percent. Absolutely. A couple other things I want to mention. I love how you talked a lot about the loved ones in the life too. And how you provide therapy. You mentioned the mother early on in our show with her son. And I know even with depression, there there are loved ones who are living through the experience in their own difficult, challenging ways. They don't always know how to help and they want to help and they can't help. And uh, once I finally recovered from a major depression, I urged my wife. It didn't take much, um, but she, she did go for therapy herself. And I'm sure some of what I said to her and things were were fairly traumatic, particularly in my case, speaking to her about suicide must have been really challenging. So I love the fact that you pull in the whole family and. And make sure they are a part of it. I really also love the whole concept of owning bipolar. I have often said the same again about depression, where I will tell um, men in particular, but anybody really, it is not your fault that you have depression, but it is your responsibility to work at getting better. And it's not easy, but laying there on the couch and doing nothing isn't going to be helpful, and just start by taking baby steps if that's what it
0: takes. But you really have to own it, take responsibility, and work at getting better. It, it, that's so true. And, you know, we were talking about medication specifically. But I think it also applies to all aspects of psychological care, like therapy. That, um, you know, one of the things that I, I mentioned when I talk in the book about uh, collaborative, uh, a collaborative a model of care is that, uh, you know, it, we, we, I certainly wasn't raised, I think most of us weren't raised to, to really understand that. I mean, we, as, as children growing up, you know, when we went to the doctor, you know, we just kind of sat there and, and, you know, did what the doctor said and, or uh, answer the questions, you know, and, it, and it was a, it, it's a very passive process. And that's what we're familiar with. And I think that kind of extends to all aspects of treatment as we get older you know, we'd be very intelligent, very engaging human beings. But when it comes to uh, medical issues of all kind and mental health issues, when we go to see a professional, uh, there's probably something inside of us that becomes kind of anxious and kind of clams up. And, and as if there's this expectation that something is going to be given to us to make us better. And all we have to do is passively receive it. Right. But we know that that's not the case I believe in any aspect of care uh, there may certainly be exceptions to that as we get older or we're, or uh you know we we have some um you know major disability or something of that nature but certainly when it comes to uh dealing with depression dealing with bipolar disorder dealing with anxiety and so forth it is an active process it's an interactive process with your therapist yeah so you know to 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 bear that and it's not always easy it's not meant to be easy if it was easy you wouldn't need treatment you just snap out of it but that doesn't happen either but working together and establishing trust and having a collaborative interactive process is your best way to overcome the things that are bringing you down yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to
1: have a degree in psychology. You can ask questions. You can question doctors also, like, tell me more. Why Why are you prescribing or uh, suggesting this medication? How will that interact with this medication? Those are all great questions to be making sure you're asking. You know, regarding medications, I have just one final question I want to ask you about bipolar disorder and medication. Is it, do you believe that it is possible for somebody to live with bipolar disorder with no medications at
0: all? Well, I would, to answer that question just as you asked it, I would say yes, it's, it is possible. But uh, I don't recommend it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because, because that, I mean, the struggle involved in, in living without what I would call proper care. And, and again, it's not limited to medications by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Um, but, uh, to, to try to power through these things, to try to mitigate, uh, the force and, uh, and, and the consequences of mania and hypomania on the one side, on the other side, to, um, to try to, uh, be functional in the midst of bipolar depression and 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 achieve a life where you have certainly some uh, emotion emotional experiences um you know remember that bipolar treatment is not about eliminating emotional experience and being a flatline zombie right,
1: right. Uh,
0: it's about having a full emotional life with minimal consequences to health relationships finances etc but but to sort of try to power through uh, without those risks, without those consequences, uh, to to be the your best self for yourself and for your loved ones whom you bring into your life, uh, going forward. Right. Uh, you know. I it it I, I think it's is it possible? Yes. But I think that with the right treatment, so many more things Al are possible right. for an individual. That carries these genes for bipolar disorder and has that foundation where at any time under any other circumstances, be it something going on inside their bodies or stress or other kinds of factors uh, going on in their life environmentally, to trigger those mood episodes and to put everything that they hold dear at risk, I, I think is unnecessary.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you early on, but we just dove right in, which I really appreciate But I wanted to ask you about the difference between bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. And I noticed that a lot of the times that we're talking about it, we just say bipolar disorder. And I'm wondering if, if that is all inclusive.
0: Well, bipolar disorder is sometimes thought of as on a spectrum, like you have bipolar 1 bipolar 2, and something that some people casually call bipolar 3, which is called uh, cyclothymic disorder or cyclothymia. But the, 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 the most common uh, is either the bipolar 1 or bipolar 2 diagnosis. And, so, and people hear those terms thrown around, and I think it is important to clarify. So bipolar 1 is uh, diagnosed pretty simply, actually, any history of at least one manic episode in a person's life. They don't have to have any history of major depression, just one episode of mania. And I'll explain a little bit about what mania is diagnostically. Bipolar two is, uh, you need two things, history of at least one hypomanic episode and one episode of major depression. So if you just have hypomania, you don't have bipolar disorder. Isn't that interesting?
1: That's uh, really but, interesting.
0: Yeah, but, uh, but mania means you have bipolar 1. And you can have hypomania in bipolar 1, uh, but, if, again, you have to have that lifetime history of at least one manic episode in your bipolar 1. So you can never be if you're bipolar 1, you can never be bipolar 2. But if you're bipolar 2, you could be bipolar 1 someday because you could have a manic episode at some point where you've had these hypomanic episodes all along the way. And that's not unusual for people to experience that. Can you define hypomania? Sure. So um, just, just to be clear, mania is, there are uh, symptoms that are related to mania that we could discuss if you like, but it's really kind of uh, more defined by time. So you have the symptoms of mania, but you have it consistently for at least one week, unless it's interrupted and, and by interrupted, I mean, uh, let's say you're in a manic episode and you wind up in the hospital and you were on the, in the hospital on the sixth day of your manic episode. Well, technically, you still have uh, a manic episode, but it's technically defined in time by seven consecutive days while hypomania, hypo meaning under mania, same symptoms, but shorter duration. And and usually we have to look at hypomania as being about four days minimum. So if you have a couple of days of hypomania, you're still maybe something else is going on. You're not quite meeting that specific type of criterion. And we usually think of hypomania being less consequential, like fewer consequences. But I've found that that's more a function of the fact that that um, there's less uh, time to get in trouble, shall we say. And a lot of times people find hypomania to their benefit because they can get a lot of things done with maybe minimal consequences, at least in their minds they think that they're minimal. But the thing about bipolar 2 that can be so devastating is not just the consequences of, of those shortened periods of hypomania, but the fact that the depression can be so awful. Right, and, right. and and so to think of uh, bipolar 2 as a lesser form of bipolar disorder is a bit misleading. Right. It requires the same kind of attention as bipolar 1. And Bi- the other aspect, too, really quickly, is that not everybody in, with bipolar disorder has uh, psychotic features such as hallucinations and delusions, but uh, that is specific to bipolar 1. So if you have hallucinations or delusions with your manic episode, you have bipolar 1. That's not a, a feature of bipolar 2. So
1: so it's time, the time factor, and
0: certain aspects
1: of the particular mania that classify it as one versus two.
0: Yeah, we typically think bipolar 1 mania has more consequences to it, but the time factor uh, is a very important thing to look at. And when I do uh, diagnostic evaluations for people, whom I suspect have bipolar, or maybe they've already been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but I want to kind of clarify and kind of break it down a little bit further. One of the things I look at is the length of those episodes, the best that they can provide that to me in terms of their history. But the other thing about bipolar 2, interesting in the, in the DSM, is that uh, one, of this, one of the standards for bipolar 2 specifically is that if somebody around that individual notices that when they are hypomanic, their behavior or their characteristic, their, their personality characteristics seem to change? So it also has to be somewhat observable. And I think the interesting thing about bipolar two is that, there, that there's a lot of people among us that have these periods of, shall we say, controlled hypomania without depression. And and maybe they're real eccentric characters and they're very creative and they get a lot of stuff done. But and and maybe they're they're not always the the nicest people to be around or or maybe they're very charismatic and they and they have they draw a lot of people to themselves. But but there's some room to kind of look at that from the perspective is that not all people that have these bursts of energy are, are, are are sick or or there's any reason to pathologize them they may just be kind of hard-driving characters or interesting characters or whatever so if there is not a significant reduction in their functioning if they don't get in trouble with the law if they don't get uh, you know appreciably uh, in trouble with their job their employment on a regular basis or relationships they have and so forth then we can look at it and kind of go well it's not really a disorder it's just an interesting person, <laughs> right? That may, that that swings a little bit, but yeah. not to not to the extent that would necessarily require that kind of attention. And I think it's diagnostically there's just a little wheel room there for that sort of thing, right. if that makes right.
1: Sense. Yep. Oh. So I have a couple of follow up questions, both related to depression. Can does a person with bipolar one also deal with depression? Uh, commonly, they do. Okay. So Commonly both they do. bipolar one and bipolar two may entail um, severe depressions.
0: Bipolar two definitely does. Okay. Bipolar one is really defined technically by mania. Right. But that doesn't mean that people with bipolar one don't have depression. Uh, very often they deal with that too. Yep. And
1: then my other question related to depression is it seems that there's this typical. Pattern and, and I'm wondering if it really does exist for the most part where somebody enters a mania and after that mania, there will be a depression. Does it typically flow in that order?
0: It, it, it certainly can. Uh, but not everybody experiences mood swings like you would see, uh, you know, when, when you see a, a graph of a radio wave. And that's a perfect up and down kind of motion on a graph, right? Right. I, I think bipolar disorder is more like a stock chart, particularly these days, <laughs> Yeah. Right, <laughs> you know, right. where, where it's not evenly up and evenly down. Um, for some people, yeah, they experience it that way. So could but, they
1: even have a depressive bout, go a few more months and then another depressive bout before a mania even? They just, there could be no rhyme or reason for them necessarily.
0: That's correct. Right. Yes. Right. And and so the that in-between mood zone, I call a baseline.
1: Okay. Yeah. Why
0: not to call it normal? You know, I don't ask people, are you feeling normal? Right. Uh, that's that's very loaded. That's a yeah. statistical kind of term anyway. Yeah. So the baseline is that mood zone between the manic mood zones, and there are three of them, hypomania, mania, and psychotic mania. Right. And uh, between those three and and then the three depress- depressive zones, which are dysthymia or minor depression major depression and then psychotic depression which obviously is the worst right that baseline a lot of times people just kind of wind up back in baseline before they go into another uh, either depressive or manic mood zone but i will tell you this uh, because everybody's pattern can can vary but what's common is when people have had that, uh, that experience of a bipolar depression, either in one or two, they never want to go back. And because it's a lifelong disorder, it's something that's been in that person's genes their whole life, even if they haven't expressed the symptoms. They typically develop a sense of self and the world around them in those extremes. And they uh, often look at the counterbalance of depression in their lives as mania or hypomania again, you know, one of those uh, manic mood zones. And so very often they would rather not take a medication or take a treatment that would forego that mania because, because that's what they've relied on to get stuff done, to feel good, to feel alive, to feel a sense of, of, of perception and color in their life and all of these wonderful things that have been taken from them when they're in that depression, even if that depression has been uh, one episode or two episodes or three in successive order. Baseline is a little bit of relief, but they always tend to look forward to that energy again so they can feel alive. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why people very often are afraid to to give that uh, that that up because they don't see the counterbalance to it. They don't see that, hey, we can get rid of depression, but 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 can we get rid of mania at the same time? It takes a while for them to, to sort of get their minds around that. Oh, I have
1: heard several people living with bipolar disorder say it is really a challenge to take the medication when they're in a mania because the mania finally feels so good after having been through such challenging times with their
0: depression. That's right. And and when people are in that level, and I call that denial, and I don't mean that to be pejorative or or judgmental. I just I think denial is a part of bipolar disorder. It just it just is, and and it's common and it's a feature of it in that pre-stabilization phase of treatment. I try to address it, and I and I and I try to address it in a non-judgmental, understanding way, recognizing that that person doesn't want to let go. They're afraid of letting go. Of, of mania very often, or at least what they perceive as the beneficial aspects of that mania, like the energy or feeling very creative or feeling alive when, you know, potentially they felt so dead inside. They don't want to feel that to help them to kind of look at, hey, we can help you to deal with depression in a way you don't have to go back to that dark place, but maybe we can retain some of your creative ability. Maybe we can retain some of your passion, some of those things that come alive again in mania, and find a way to do that while minimizing the consequences of mania and depression together. And, uh, you know, it's for some people, it's kind of a hard sell. For some people, they latch onto it right away. But that really is, uh, I think, the beginning of that treatment process to look at those possibilities. Right. So
1: another question for you about a mania, I have heard stories where people have been on a mania and literally like woken up in Las Vegas on a gambling spree and didn't even really realize how they got there. Is that symptomatic of a psychotic episode? Is that definitely a bipolar one situation versus a bipolar two? Or is that hard to say?
0: Oh, that's bipolar one. Okay. Okay. That, that, that Just because but, of something so extreme. It, and, it's, and it's not unusual for somebody who has been in a particularly severe manic episode to have a, a fractured short-term memory. And sometimes the short-term memory could be days in the making, as you suggest in that one example. Right. But it, it's, and, it, and it becomes uh, quickly a point of conflict. For that person, when they do come home, if they do come home, they're allowed to come home, shall we say, for that person to kind of go, you know, I don't remember what happened or I I couldn't have spent all that money. Uh, And then perhaps a spouse or somebody else uh, in that person's life will say, well, yeah, you did. You were gone for uh, two weeks. Um, I have all the bills right here. And they're like going, wow, wow. that couldn't possibly be me, and it and and of course that's that's met with a lot of uh, doubt. You might, as you might imagine, right that that maybe that person is lying or whatever. But it's not unusual for somebody to be so so taken over by media, particularly at that psychotic level, right, right. That they can be gone for several days. They can be on uh, spending sprees uh, until they have no money left. Uh, maybe engage in uh, sexual discretions with people they they don't know and on and on and on right. uh, and and I can't emphasize enough uh, drug and alcohol binges, of yeah. course I mean yeah. uh, bipolar about fifty uh, percent uh, uh, of people with bipolar disorder have a co-occurring or have had a co-occurring substance abuse disorder. Yeah, it's very common. So all of these things certainly can and do happen and create such a tragic, Set of circumstances, and and that's ironic because I do talk about um, uh, one uh, particular individual in the book. I have several stories of people that that have shared with me that uh, that I share in the book. Owning bipolar, and one of them is about a woman who would go to hotels and check into hotels um, for stretches at a time, and be very much out of control in her behavior. And, uh, and that wasn't her character, that wasn't her characteristically. Right. Um, that, that didn't represent who that person was. Maybe they have deep down desires and wishes as we all do. I mean, you know, most of us have dreamt of being rock stars or professional athletes or, or, you know, famous uh, individuals and, and that sort of thing. But people that have the, especially that psychotic level of mania, all of those wishes and desires can be pushed out into very destructive ways without the containment of of reality and right. rationality right. that more reflects the person's true character yeah i still yeah. remember uh, an interview i had
1: one of my earlier episodes is with johnny solomon a lead singer for the communist daughter and he was dealing with substance abuse drugs and bipolar disorder and Through one of his manias, he loved cooking, so he actually convinced a few friends to give him some money. He got a small loan, and he opened a restaurant. And soon he crashed into a major depression and was like, what did I just do? Mm -hmm. Like He couldn't even believe it himself. So if you do something so extreme and out of the norm from what you would do when you are at your baseline...
0: That doesn't necessarily mean it's a psychotic episode, or does it? Uh, no, it doesn't necessarily mean that. I, I think some of the examples we were just talking about certainly could be considered at that level, right? And and there are other features that kind of go into it, so it yeah, it, it's not necessarily that simplistic, right? But but when you're talking about something so far out of character, let, maybe we contrast that with somebody that has, um, uh, mania or hypomania where more often than not, they're, they're pretty reasonable in terms of how they manage their money, shall we say. But, um, but when they have that, those episodes, uh, they go online, they start buying things. And then, you know, a few days later, they have all these boxes at their door and, and maybe they didn't spend, you know, $10,000, but they may spend a couple hundred. Right. Right. You know, and and of, actual yeah. items that they may actually like and need. <laughs> or, or, or maybe they like they don't necessarily need, right? right? I mean, yeah. Right. Uh, but it, and there's a way to kind of look at these particular situations. And, and, and of course, uh, you know, one situation or one symptom, for that matter, doesn't define the whole thing. Everything is sort of a context yeah. in terms of how we look at it collectively with other bipolar-related symptoms and history. Right. But, uh, but that just kind of provides some, some, some contrast yeah. between some things that certainly have consequence to them and then those things that are just off the charts.
1: So I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are also on I've met uh, through the interviews at least one or two people who believe that their bipolar well their their manic or psychotic episode was actually some type of mystical event where like uh, meeting with a greater power, say possibly God or somebody, some other greater power. Do you hear those stories? Do you believe that that could be a part of it?
0: I'm curious on your take on that. If, if, if subject like that comes up in therapy, I always greet that with, with, with curiosity and, uh, and a sensitivity to that person's own particular Spiritual or mystical belief system, and 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 how they present that to me is is really important, particularly in the context of let's say how they were raised religiously or not. So everybody has a different story to tell. Uh, what I don't do right away is to let them know that that's a symptom uh, or of of a of a disease. Okay. now it might be driven by that. If 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 that distinction is 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 kind of clear, right, because if they don't have those experiences, unless they're manic, there's something about their mania that's pushing that forward. So you know, it, I'm, I'm just a therapist. I don't have all the answers to the universe. Sorry, Al. <laughs>
1: right, right, right. <laughs> no, yeah, you know, I hear
0: you. Yeah, maybe someday you'll have a guest on who does, but <laughs> it, it won't be me. Not, not today. Right. Uh, uh, but, you know, now we're getting into, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that mystical or, or God oriented or, or anything of the sort. It, it could be, you know, when, When I have this manic uh, episode, you know, I see certain things or I think certain things or ideas that I would not have otherwise. Right. So it may be more in the the realm of the physical world, uh, in in a sense, or they have these creative ideas. And we explore those.
1: Yeah, right. And
0: we explore, though, how that energy and that uh, grandiose uh, experience really pushes these things in in a particular direction and why does that happen okay so so i i I try not to be quick to dismiss these things dismiss these things and just attribute it to pathology right but look at something maybe deeper in that person's experience and their history and the dynamics of who they are as an individual where that particular experience comes out because bipolar has symptoms that are more or less shared by anybody who has the genetic predisposition. But beyond those symptoms, what it sort of produces, if you will, can be an inroads to that person's life experience and how they feel about themselves and the world around them. And bigger issues, existential issues, um, heaven and hell, whatever it is that they may be at some level preoccupied with, is all a part of that bipolar therapy and, and worth talking about and exploring.
1: Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you more about that. I know you mentioned four different types of therapeutic background you have, psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, object relations, and existential theories. And I'm curious about the object relations and
0: existential theories. I hadn't heard of those two. Well, congratulations on being able to pronounce those. I think you did a better job than I would have. (laughs) It took me a couple tries. (laughs) i still struggle with those terms (laughs) well uh very basically existential therapy can be kind of distilled to understanding the person in their in their present context it's kind of comes out of like the idea of here and now and 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 from there i think kind of uh exploring as as i just suggested uh and not limited to people with bipolar or some some sort of Uh, extraordinary experience but who they are as individuals well what does it mean what is the purpose uh and meaning of that person's individual life as as they see it um from their uh psychoanalysis and psychodynamics uh they're, they're a little bit different but they they relate in the sense that there is a certain foundation that we all have we, we, we typically talk about that as unconscious, right? All of those things that we've experienced in our developmental years from, from day one um, through childhood and adolescence uh, in particular, and the very important people that raise us and influence our lives during those critical years of development. But not it doesn't stop when you're 18 or 19 or 25, <clears throat> Um you know we continue to build who we are but very often our our troubles our conflicts the things that that are unresolved in our lives maybe from prior relationships from perhaps traumas big and small that we've experienced in our life uh, may get repressed maybe buried deep within us and in one way or another in the course of therapy uh, no matter what drives a person to the therapy in the first place What we frequently, as therapists, call presenting complaints or presenting problems, the kinds of things a person will say, well, the reason I'm here today or the reason I called you is I'm having problems in my marriage. I'm having problems at school. um, um, I drink too much and on and on and on. Or I get depressed or I've been having suicidal feelings and so forth. Um, Certainly, we have to look at the crisis and the presenting issues as they are because those are very, very important for what they are. Um, they're they're um, having a great impact in a very immediate sense, and could be, in fact, even dangerous, and, and need immediate attention. But I always find that those are the beginnings of an inroad to the, the person's deeper experience, <clears throat> and very often that um, um, patients will go from there, from that crisis, um, um, that immediate sort of clinical. Um, distress that they may be going through, to uh, communication at one level or another about how they feel about themselves, how they feel about life, um, how they interact uh, uh, with other people that may be influenced, for better or for worse, from those early life experiences, and and take an examination in a deeper sense of what that person has experienced in life and, and how that affects him or her going forward, and very often that's expressed in sometimes very powerful ways and sometimes in very nuanced ways in the course of the therapy relationship or the therapy alliance between patient and therapist. And so all of those things, I think, are um, very important to explore in therapy and and give the person an opportunity to better understand uh, their own life, their own experience, and how that influences their relationships, how they feel about themselves, and what sort of goals and objectives they can look forward to in their lives going forward. Excellent. I would love to hear, I know you've mentioned your
1: book a few times throughout, and the listeners probably have a bit of a sense of your book. Again, the title is Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Family Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. I'm wondering if you could just tell us, um, a bit more about your book and what, what would be important for listeners to, to know about the
0: book and who it might be a good book for. Well, I, I really do believe that anybody that's, um, that is currently dealing with bipolar disorder or suspects bipolar disorder, you're not necessarily sure, or you have dealt with, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, anxiety. Maybe uh, a psychosis, substance abuse, any of these other things that may be related to, to an underlying bipolar condition. Anyone that believes that the, the, the bipolar may uh, exist in, in your life and that may be somebody who has the condition, what I identify as a patient, but families, loved ones, um, maybe you know, and a family could be a best friend. A family could be a, a longtime business associate. You know, uh, people get to define who their family is, right? Um, it's not li- limited in the in the sort of classic sort of relationships that we tend to think about, but anybody who has some investment in that person's life. Right. I think the book will provide a clear uh, set of facts and and stories. To help uh, illuminate what bipolar disorder is and what you can do about it. Again, both as a patient, somebody who loves that patient and is interested in that person's life. Whether you're a parent, a spouse, a caregiver, or, like I said, a friend or anybody that might be associated with that person. Uh, you know, very often I I hear from people who who had a business associate with bipolar disorder and and the disorder was so bad it wreaked havoc on their business and as a result ruined a lifelong partnership potentially so there's there's a lot of places where i think people can can get uh support and information from the book and and begin to build a sense of what is possible in their treatment and share that information and that guidance with their treatment providers and work together on it yeah awesome That's excellent. And
1: if people want to get their hands on the book or learn more about you, what would be the best
0: spot for them to to find that? Yeah, thanks, Al. Anybody can go to my website, michaelpipich.com. So that's michael and then p-i-p-i-c-h.com. And I have other websites as well, uh, owningbipolar.com, the Bipolar Network, just bipolarnetwork.com. There's also a Bipolar Network Facebook page, um, and they all kind of lead back to that, that central place. And you can find out about me my services. You can find out about the book and, um, and uh, stories about people who have, have gone through a bipolar disorder that you might be able to relate to. And I also have a, a blog on psychologytoday.com. The famous magazine, Psychology Today, that's that. Um, And then a new blog that's uh, up and coming, choosingtherapy.com. So I write for both of those blogs as well. So all those places, uh, you can can find out about my work, learn more about bipolar disorder and other things. And if you want to send me an email, you can go to my website at michaelpippich.com. There's an email link there. Send me a message. If you have a question or just something you want to share, I'd be happy to uh, interact with you.
1: Fantastic.
0: And before we wrap up,
1: Michael, I want to ask you, and you mentioned even the book for this, but if there's a listener right now who is thinking like, wow, this, this kind of describes me or, or this could be my spouse or my loved one. What is a piece of advice that you would give to somebody who's listening and thinking, I might, this might be me. What would be a good first step
0: for them to take? I think the first thing to understand is that you're not alone Right. in spite of how you're feeling right now. You're not alone. Yeah. There, there, there is help available. There are people who understand professionals and non-professionals who work every day to advocate for people like yourself. And, and so as scary as it is, and maybe you've tried reaching out, uh, and, and, and maybe it's uh, fallen flat. Don't give up. Right. Um, you know, find, find uh, if you're looking for a professional, find somebody who understands bipolar disorder. Yep. You know, for a lot of people, because they don't necessarily know better, it's not their fault, but they might just reach out to a therapist or a doctor or whatever, and, and that's fine. That's a good place to start. But ask questions. Do you deal with bipolar disorder? Do you deal with mood swings? You know, what do you do for people that have this kind of condition? You know, uh, feel empowered to ask questions and get information, the right information. Yeah. And know, again, that you're not alone. Uh, we know that up to 5% of the population um, has some form of bipolar disorder. So it's one in 20. So it's it's not a, 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 such a rare disorder that, uh, that uh, there, there aren't resources available. Right So I think that if you feel like, hey, I'm not alone, uh, even though I feel that way right now, or I feel discouraged, or I've tried medications, or I've tried treatment, or I try to get my loved one in treatment, and that's been really hard, get the support necessary from people who understand what you're dealing with. And and from there, you can find the strength, the empowerment, and the facts to take it to the next step.
1: Yeah, awesome advice. Really, really uh, important advice. Well, Michael, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for putting all of this good work and incredible information out into the world with your book, your website, the work you do. And I also want to thank you so much for taking the time to be
0: on The Depression Files. It's been incredibly interesting and very informative. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Al. And and let me say, too, I really appreciate what you're doing. I mean, sharing stories is a powerful tool. Um, You know, we can talk about facts and statistics all day long, but it's really the stories of everybody's life and that really makes a difference and really brings people together. So thanks for everything you're doing as well.
1: Well, thank you very much. All right. Well, thanks again and make sure uh, you stay healthy. You as well. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.